Hello, and welcome to Fairfax 50 Plus, a series featuring discussions of issues of interest to residents 50 and over. I'm your host, Jim Person, and today we're going to continue our discussion about how older adults are adjusting to the coronavirus pandemic, and particularly the demands for social distancing. We also want to explore what we are learning from all this and what we can expect as we become and enter the quote-unquote new normal, if you will. You may remember that Phyllis miller Palumbi was uh, kicking off this discussion recently with us during her uh, chat with us back in April. She's a marriage and family therapist based in Reston. She's also the Hunter Mill District Representative on the Fairfax Area Commission on Aging. Joining Phyllis today is Dr. Richard Hilburn, an internal medicine physician whose career includes a 35-year stint with the Army. Since 2013, he specialized in geriatric medicine as well as hospice and palliative care, currently works at the Veterans Administration in Columbia, Maryland. So, Dr. Hilburn, Phyllis, thank you both for uh, being on the podcast with us today. Well, thank you, Jim. For both of us, I mean, it's really for me to be back uh, to deal with this very disturbing topic and what has happened since the pandemic. Uh, Dr. Hilburn will address 65 and over population, and I will focus on our 50 to 65 population since the Commission on Aging covers a wide range of people's lives. Uh, And when we met last, you know, people were adjusting to the basic shock and organizing and reorganizing their lives, and some has been successful, and some are experiencing more anxiety with it now. Social distancing and masking was an adjustment that we were adapting to, um, and hopefully we thought this was going to be short-lived. So Esther Perel, a family therapy colleague of mine, termed this period as an invisible current of dread. We have no way of knowing what permanent will be lost, you know, from our everyday lives, and the entire world seems to be in communal grief. We're all fearful that we'll get sick. And uh, we're waiting to see if those unmasking will cause a spike from businesses opening prematurely. Uh, right. There's a lot of confusion and anger, and I hear it all over from my patients and their families. So both a question for both of you. How are your clients and patients dealing with the, the fear? Let's talk about fear first. How are they dealing with the fear that's associated with contracting uh, the coronavirus? Fear has to do with anticipatory anxiety, and uh, it really paralyzes people um, to a point that they can't think through things. And one of the things that we try to help people with to alleviate that anxiety, which is based on fantasy and not always reality, is to do a couple of things, and that is make sure you're getting scientific information that is correct from reliable sources. And the most important thing is making a plan for yourself and your family um, to stay safe. Uh, yes, I agree with, uh, with what Phyllis just said. Um, in terms of the uh, older old population, those who are uh, especially in their 70s and 80s and beyond, <clears throat> they are already dealing with anxiety about uh, changes with aging uh, as manifest in disrupted sleep and arthritis, uh, changes in bowel and bladder function, heart and lung function, and uh, hearing, teeth, all of those things. <clears throat> but uh, the pandemic brings to the forefront the decline in immune function that is a part of aging. 
the older people are, uh, as a consequence, uh, already vulnerable to common things like urinary tract infections and pneumonia. And um, by the same token, they're more vulnerable to COVID infections. Uh, so this pandemic brings to the forefront uh, one of the greatest um, sources of anxiety for people as they age. We're, you know, as, as we constantly hear in the news, you know, social distancing, wear masks, phase one, phase two, phase three, all the different, you know, states and localities doing different things and then hearing about this, you know, perhaps uh, increase back and uh, those type of things. This, the social distancing, how are both of the age kind of groups that, that both of you are kind of talking about, how are we dealing with these social distancing protocols? What, what can you tell us about those? Let me just address this is a huge discrepancy in age groups. The population from 50 to 65 are dealing probably with college kids at home, and uh, they may have parents who are in the area or from a distance. So they've spent the last couple of months reorganizing work schedule, having students at home, everybody reorganizing medical issues, the very basic shopping for food, self-care issues had to be put off um, and changed since March, which was no small task. I do see people have adjusted and changed uh, work to virtual at home kids learning at home, even college age, but we're more challenged as time goes by and shocked right now that we still need to do this and we don't know for how long. Um, And two or three adults or more in a household are struggling to maintain separate work areas. Intimacy of being around and being observed all day long by your family is a stress on one's privacy and routine, let alone college kids who have lost their whole way of maintaining their their identity um, and living under, you know, the parents' roof. Mm-hmm. So this is a huge struggle. Um, and the masking issues and dealing with that, every family is challenged right now in terms of creating their own rules. And it's a very big divide in our society, in our country right now in terms of um, how you protect yourself or how you think this is not really a real phenomenon. Dr. Hilburn, what are you finding in, in the population that, that you're kind of targeting here on this, this podcast? Social distancing is a, it's an extremely variable experience uh, uh, among geriatrics. Uh, some older people already have a robust repertoire of independent activities uh that they indulge routinely, and uh, they're less bothered by the loss of freedom to move move about and socialize. Um, But those are very dependent upon others um, to support uh, their opportunities for social activities. Uh, They have to broaden their forms of engagement. Um, Even one or two new things can make a big difference. For example, as uh, Phil alluded to, um, patients using uh, things like cell phones or computers as instruments to, to sustain or enrich their relationships with family and friends it helps a lot. Um, and many of the very senior older people uh, do not have facility uh, with cell phones and computers. Uh, among those that do, some of my hearing impaired 
uh, geriatrics are actually finding the um, meetings on platforms like Zoom or Ring or Skype uh, especially enjoyable because they can invest the volume uh, and mm. it makes it somewhat easier uh, to enjoy conversations and sermons and music and so forth. Uh, right. So I, I sometimes get that feedback. Any other uh, kind of best practices, uh, antidotes that you're that you're hearing about the the older end of the population? You may be, I guess, asking about um, uh, the impact on uh, social uh, distancing uh, in terms of isolation and. Uh, for older people who are able to get about, get about on their own and walk independently, um, they do, I think, about as well as most of the rest of the population. But older people who are uh, dependent upon caregivers for help with daily activities um, are also dependent upon them for most forms of social engagement. So. Um, an extreme example would be those who depend upon caregivers to help them with things like bathing and toileting and dressing and eating. And, um, their um, extreme dependency upon others uh, for even those activities of daily living it puts them in great jeopardy uh, a couple of ways. Number one is if their caregivers become ill or quarantined for safety, then they've lost that support. And that may actually create somewhat of an emergency um, for their uh, just basic needs from day to day. And they're additionally in jeopardy um, when they're in a caregiver relationship because they have no insight or control about how, how their caregivers are behaving when they're not on the job. To an extent, the caregiver-client relationship provides some protection from loneliness and that and, uh, protracted period of isolation and restrictions such as we're experiencing now, that's liable to wear thin as weeks and months of no other stimulation drag on. So you know, while these patients uh, live with a degree of social isolation outside when we're not having, right. or I mean when we're not having a pandemic, um, this definitely puts an um, exclamation point on, on that uh, characteristic of their lives. Yesterday, I was part of a, um, a webinar, and um, the director of Wheels on Meals nationwide was talking, as well as somebody which I thought was interesting from the motion picture industry. Both groups are very concerned, as well as the commission is here um, in, in Fairfax, about how do we reach people who are isolated for so the things that Dr. Hilburn just said, the you know, the one person who may be a caregiver but who gets sick or who can't come or they're trying to find help. We're trying to develop networks, Meals on Wheels, with, you know, that woman was talking about a wonderful um, relationship that sometimes it's the only person that they see in a day that comes to, you know, bring them food. And the uh, motion picture industry has now a very wonderful program that uh, volunteers, who on the phone connect, they have a person who will make that daily phone call to somebody and develop a relationship. And through that relationship, we get more information about the needs of that older person. I thought that was fascinating yesterday. I mean, I, I thought, wow, what a good program that we should be developing here. 
a good best practice to follow. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's, uh, back, yeah, back in April when you on the Fairfax 50 Plus podcast, you discussed the uh, the risk of social isolation uh, during social distancing. It's kind of kind of tricky words for me to make sure I'm saying it right. That social isolation as we're having to do this social distancing. Could you kind of give us a recap on what we're talking about when we're talking about social isolation and and the danger that it poses to older adults? Certainly, when somebody is uh, isolated and or has agitation that we try to cut down on, there is a depression, and depression, you know, certainly affects the immune system and the ability to fight off infection. But um, I think that what we're seeing now across age groups are um, pretty maladaptive habits. Uh, the increase in alcohol intake is phenomenal right now. Um, drugs mm. and al- alcohol are on the rise. People just, unless they can employ, you know, healthier ways of coping, this is a um, certainly a byproduct, you know, that's negative that is helping people to cope, you know, as, as they try to get through this time. So I'm very concerned about those areas. And when I work with my families, we try to go over, you know, healthier ways of adapting to the the stress of the situation. The the drugs and alcohol is that one would think, and it's an assumption, that would be an issue perhaps with the younger population as opposed to an older population that has more experience. Not necessarily. Yeah, I, I think that actually is a... That's what I think a lot of people would assume, but um, uh, alcohol abuse is fairly prevalent in the older population, um, mm. and it's a it, it, it significant contributor to uh, problems with uh, falls and injuries and accelerated cognitive decline and uh, noncompliance with medication regimen and uh, dietary indiscretion. And uh, oftentimes, people who are drinking abusively will uh, skip meals and uh, and drink instead. So some some people who abuse alcohol or uh, suffer from the disease of alcoholism, but uh, there's a much larger number of people who are not necessarily physiologically addicted to the drug alcohol, but who do abuse the drug alcohol, and and they still suffer. Uh, mm. the uh, ill health effects of doing so. There, I think Phyllis is exactly right. And, and it did, uh, there's clear data that um, alcohol consumption and drug consumption has increased significantly during uh, this pandemic. Wow. Well, you know, I always say that I, I learn something on every podcast and, uh, you know, there, there again is a great example. You know, my my assumption is incorrect, and uh, you know that that's good information to know. Unfortunately, uh, it's uh, it's information that uh, is is not what we want to hear. But uh, now that we maybe all know it, we can try to do something about it. Absolutely. You know, healthier behaviors. Um, I think generally, people who um, abuse substances to include alcohol. Um, and may not have had so many healthy behaviors in the first place. And mm-hmm. uh, so, uh, so one thing that Phyllis and I have talked a lot about is what, what can people do now to 
that's uh, different than what they used to do, kind of seize upon this opportunity to adopt healthier habits, and and we think that they can. They can use this as, uh, you know, this isolation, this social restriction and so forth as an opportunity to change lifestyle in the present and uh, develop some new habits and ways that uh, they can carry forward even when the pandemic is gone. So so what are some of the recommendations uh, that, you, that you would give? I made a little list <clears throat> anticipating that question, and um, I'll just hit the bullets because uh, the time limitation, uh, I, I won't go into great detail here. Um, one is uh, eating a balanced diet. Two meals a day is common amongst uh, older adults, so if you make mealtime somewhat special and uh, discipline uh, yourself to, to stick to that a schedule of at least two meals a day, uh, that, that can make it a special, enjoyable time. Uh, exercising twice a day, once in the morning, once in the afternoon. For people who are not accustomed to doing so, they should never um, do anything to strain themselves, never uh, exercise to the point of discomfort. And 10-minute iterations is just fine and increase the duration by, say, two minutes or three minutes every week with a target of 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the afternoon. Uh, Learning how to meditate. Um, Many people already do indulge some form of meditation through prayer. There are some uh, websites that are helpful and people who are not uh, used to meditating. One of them is named Insight Timer, which one can use for free. Sleep hygiene, which meditation helps. Uh, Aging people suffer from disrupted sleep cycles as their day-night physiology often becomes uh, discombobulated as the years pass. So uh, learning good sleep hygiene meditation can support that. And uh, there are some good good websites with many uh, great suggestions. One in particular, Quarantine Clever. That's Quarantine Clever. It's a very it's a very pleasant, well designed website. It's somewhat enjoyable just to visit. Uh, and there are a lot of suggestions um, with detail on that site. So this kinds of things would be my suggestion. Right. right. Phyllis, what what about you in that fifty to sixty five yes, age range? Sure. Model? It's a it's a different kind of population there, as you alluded to earlier. You know, probably college right. age kids home. You know, they're still having right. to work those kind of things. And I think everybody has to do what Dr. Hilburn was just talking about. We need to get on a schedule where we remind ourselves how to, you know, physically take care of our self care and and do that. But I have seen families in such healthy ways. Um, online group Scrabble games across the country with families that they usually don't interact with. Doing an activity often lightens, you know, fears when we share it and then we get into using humor in family groups I have seen. I have a mother and a daughter in two different cities taking a cooking class together online. You know, even those who are living alone are taking online classes with strangers from the Smithsonian or their you know, college alumni groups, you know, there's a lot of things being produced where people can really learn and entertain each other. Trying new recipes, 
uh, you know, neurologically, when we find that when we do a project using eye-hand coordination, there is a neurological positive shift as negative thoughts really get rerouted into the project. And there's a feeling of accomplishment and relief from negativity just doing an activity. And Zoom, of course, is, you know, I keep on talking about that. I've had Zoom meetings. People can continue their work activities and see, at least see colleagues, you know, across the room. I've had patients who have had virtual dinner parties. You know, they sit down and eat dinner with friends on Zoom. My son had to postpone his big Memorial Day weekend wedding, and they decided to get married on my porch. And the wedding was um, posted on Facebook Live and enjoyed by over 200 people. Um, it was very special. Uh, some folks even got dressed up in their own homes and opened a bottle mm-hmm. of champagne. Um, mm-hmm. People wrote online messages when it was happening. So you have the ability, you know, to be Internet savvy, I guess, and take advantage of these things. It really alleviates a lot of the pressure uh, and the constant rumination, you know, that we all have right now of what's going to happen ahead. And I think that's critical. Dr. Hilburn, you're um, specialized in geriatric medicine. We mentioned in the intro hospice and palliative care. What what about that um, kind of area of, of medicine and, and what you're seeing as it relates to the coronavirus now? Are there things that are happening in, in that hospice world, that palliative care area that have been affected by the pandemic? Uh, yeah, to an extent there has been. Uh, the fundamental parameters for for managing uh, symptoms, uh, which is what palliative care is all about, and um, managing uh, the symptoms uh, uh, through the time and ending of life uh, is what hospice is all about. But the fundamental parameters there have not changed. Um, however, patients who are in hospice at home their providers are still challenged by the safety precautions and uh, more limited appointment availability uh, that the rest of the medical world is experiencing. Uh, most hospice is delivered in the home. and So if you have a nurse practitioner or a physician that's going from one patient's home to the next patient's home to the next patient's home, and of course the Family members, you know, they want to be able to visit a person uh, in the, during their terminal uh, period. And so you can understand how there's an enormous increased risk for exposure. It's amplified by the practitioner going from one home to another and, and further amplified by uh, family and friends that want to visit during that, during that critical period. Right. And from the patient's perspective, uh, one of the things that's very important for patients, um, psycho-emotional peace and uh, during the time of passing is being able to have visitors um, mm-hmm. that come to see them. So it's, it is a pretty significant challenge um, that is special, you know, it's not a very special and unusual situation. It's outside the usual protocols for treatment. We've 
you know, oftentimes hear the word, you know, resilience uh, and being resilient. Um, you know, I oftentimes wonder if people really understand what the re- resilient or being, you know, being resilient or the word resilience is. And I wanted to lead that, say that by leading into this question or, or statement about, about you currently working at the Veterans Administration. Uh, you know, first of all, our, our thanks to you and everybody who's, you know, continuing their, their valuable work during this. But how have you and your colleagues kind of maintained that resilient attitude during all this? Are you asking specifically about uh, myself and the nurses and uh, medical staff assistants? How, how are we remaining yes. resilient? Yes. yes. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> Just do what you got to do. Yeah, actually, you know, I, I derive uh, a great deal of personal satisfaction and fulfillment from uh, taking care of patients and serving them. So, a part of that is that uh, Veterans Administration has uh, been very proactive in advancing our use of telemedicine. So every day I do, you know, 12 or more uh, encounters with patients over the telephone. And we also use video teleconferencing with uh, those who have that capability. Unfortunately, amongst the older population, there, as I said earlier, very many who don't have that facility, but um, this is certainly an opportunity uh, for them to be motivated to, to get it. Um, and we, we do have some interaction with each other at work, although we stay masked even here in the clinic. All of us are masked. Uh, the entire time. I'm in my office alone right now, so I don't have a mask on. But if I open the door or step out into the hall, my mask is on. Um, that doesn't prevent us from, you know, having conversations, but it's a conversation through the mask. Individually, uh, I know that my colleagues are staying home more in the evenings. They're not going out uh, very much. Uh, we don't want to uh, risk uh, expanded exposure in the community that we then bring into the clinic to each other. If we lose somebody in the clinic, it has a ripple effect through the effort to provide care for patients. So um, for myself, I'm a bachelor, um, and uh, I usually live off of microwaves, and lo and behold, uh, <laughs> I'm just starting to cook, uh, you know, vegetables that, or fresh, and, you know, uh, I, I try to exercise a little bit and um, uh, reading a book that I haven't read before. Um, so, um, yes, and artwork. I'm, I'm doing a little artwork. Some of my colleagues are um, revisiting their childhood uh, practices with musical instruments and um, when able, exercising outside, bicycle riding, especially those sorts right. of things. You're you're taking the advice that you gave others earlier. Lots of different things that you can do to uh, stay fit, stay active, keep your mind engaged, and and that type of thing. As we're trying to get through this, we unfortunately are about out of time. I wanted to get both of you to pull out your crystal ball, if you will, the magic eight ball, whatever you like to use and uh, kind of look towards the future a little bit when we can say that COVID-19, you know, is is gone, it's behind us. Um, let, 
to the prognostic age. Phyllis, we'll start with you. In normal, well, what do you think it's going to look like yeah, for older adults? I think the things that Dr. Hilburn is doing for himself and that what I do and what we're talking about is, you know, it's crucial that we continue the things that, uh, whether it's Zooming with family meetings and continuing to connect uh, and that we don't get too busy, you know, running around when things are open again. Uh, it would be a shame if those new habits are lost. But one of the most important benefits uh, that we've talked about is bridging the generation gap. And what I mean about that, um, the work that Rick and I do often involves making others aware of the challenges that older people face as a result of aging. And never before has the younger generation experienced actually what it's like to have limitations and restrictions of movement that mirrors the experiences in the geriatric community. Uh, younger people are not as free to go places, have limited interaction with others socially or at work. Um, they're experiencing what it's, what it's like not to be able to mingle freely. And hopefully this convergence of new norms will enable young people to better understand the human commonality with people, you know, across generations. I'm hoping something will, you know, come of that for the future right. that will benefit everybody. Dr. Hilburn, any prognostications? Well, I guess I can comment. I, Phyllis, that was so well said. I, I agree, and, you know, that the lessons we are learning now, the new skills we gain, uh, we can sustain those uh, into the future after the pandemic has passed. And uh, so I view the experience we're sharing now as an opportunity to improve our lives and relationships going forward. And, and certainly the business world is never going to be the same. It's going to be better uh, for business and for employees. And um, so, uh, so also can be the way we relate to each other, the way we live as neighbors, uh, the way we nurture our society and our country. This is an opportunity. It doesn't necessarily feel that way uh, all the time, but um, I, I think it's critical to look hard for the opportunities we have and try to spend a little more time focusing on that rather than um, you know, what we've lost. I, I think I think you said it very well, and I can't think of a uh, a better way to end the podcast than with uh, those uh, good words from both of you, marriage and family therapist Phyllis Miller Palombi and Dr. Richard Hilburn. Thank you so much for being on the Fairfax 50 Plus podcast. As always, you can find uh, county older adult services, recreation, community engagement opportunities by calling 703-324-7948. DTY number is 711. We can go online to fairfaxcounty.gov slash older adults. When you're on that page, go to the Hot Topics box to find online activities such as yoga and Tai Chi classes and virtual activities that you can enjoy at home. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the monthly Golden Gazette newspaper while you're on that page. Thanks again for joining us on the Fairfax 50 Plus podcast, which is produced by the Fairfax County Virginia Government. 